Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the key to success for agency response to the customer experience EO. They need to make sure that they are talking to not just their existing customers, but their potential and eligible customers. People who may not know how to come to government and say, I need help, or they may be fearful or distrustful of doing so. A former DOD comptroller has one word for the impact of a full year CR on the department. Terrible. That would be a real problem. And and the Army turbocharges its digital transformation. If the network is a highway, I mean, the, uh, the data is the gasoline that fuels all the cars. It's Friday, December 17th, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast presented by Cyber Reason. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Agencies will get help from the U.S. Digital Service and the General Services Administration to execute the executive order on customer experience. Deputy Director for Management at OMB, Jason Miller, says those agencies and individual departments will use what he calls existing resources. Federal CIO Claire Martirana and USDS Administrator Mina Shung will tell you more on Monday's Daily Scoop podcast. John Sherman's officially on his way to becoming chief information officer at the Defense Department. The Senate confirmed him unanimously this week. He was acting CIO at DOD before President Biden nominated him for the permanent job. He was CIO of the intelligence community before he went to the Pentagon. The chief technology officer at the Justice Department is leaving government after 17 years. Ron Butra's last day at the department is today. He's been at Justice since 2015. He was chief technology officer at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration before that. You can read more about all these headlines and lots of other stories at fedscoop.com. IT leaders from the Energy Department, the Internal Revenue Service, the State Department, and the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center at the Pentagon are coming to the Cloudera Government Forum 2022. It's Wednesday, January 19th at the Ritz-Carlton Pentagon City. You can read more about it and see the agenda in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. 25 agencies will drive customer experience projects President Biden's executive order on CX spells out. The executive order name checks legislation and other federal government action on CX since 1993. Lauren DeYoung-Shulman is vice president for research and evaluation at the Partnership for Public Service. She's former senior advisor to the National Security Advisor. Lauren, welcome back. It's great to talk to you again. What's your takeaway from the executive order on CX? This is one of the most exciting pieces of policy I've seen come out of the Biden administration, um, largely because it recognizes that the whole purpose of government is to work for the public, to do good for the public. And it puts it in language that makes sense to that customer so that the American people can read the fact sheet and see themselves and how they may benefit from this, rather than it just being like, you know, we're going to go do some studies and we're going to do some benchmarking and do some data analysis. They have to do that too. But the policy made clear that the whole reason they're doing this is to make our lives, our needs, uh, our, our lives easier, our needs easier to articulate, and our relationship with government more streamlined. And that's just such a sea change from how government usually talks to the American people that I think that no matter how, where it ends up, as a start, it's worth celebrating. There's a lot going on here in this. I think, uh, I think yeah. you're right. Among the policies that I've seen over the last 15 or whatever years that I've been tracking this stuff, 
this is deeper than I think a lot of people maybe gave it credit for. Uh, mm -hmm. The terminology time tax that was in there, I thought was really striking because that's how people think about it way outside the beltway. This has costed me money the time that I take to sit and try to click through a website or fill out a paper or whatever. The other thing that I thought was striking, Lauren, and, and I'm curious to know whether there's been a lot of thought about this is mm -hmm. this discussion could wind up streamlining what we've been talking about Washington for decades, which is how do we realign government agencies to work better for the customer for the citizen this might not require moving the boxes at all if some of the technology the government's talking about underneath it winds up working am i on the right track do you think you're absolutely on the right track and i think a, a good example for thinking about this is if you are a survivor of a hurricane or a natural disaster it may be that as a homeowner and a business owner or somebody who may have other needs from the government you have to go fill out a form or multiple forms over and over in order to get access to benefits that you qualify for, that government wants to provide you with. That can take months at a time. It can ask confusing and sometimes conflicting questions. And it ends up feeling like a gotcha exercise rather than an instance where government is trying to or wanting you to help you. This policy tries to create a vision where the burden of action or information sharing and aid is on government instead of the customer so that you, a customer doesn't have to understand the roadmap or of all the federal agencies they need to talk to. They don't need to know what the authority is that enables them to actually get access to this aid. They just need to know that they need help and uh, a, a way it puts in there is like that no door is wrong. Any door you knock on is going to get you to the place you need to go. That's how government should work. And I think we also need to recognize that this policy is basically creating a vision of government as it always should have been, but has not been. And it will be take a lot of work to get there, but I think it's setting out a vision that is compelling um, and is very understandable to somebody who is trying to interact with government in some ways. The other thing that I think is significant about this, it's not like this has never happened before, but it's useful that they're here. Is there are numbers within 180 days of the date of this order and every six months thereafter. Deputy Director for Management at OMB and the President's Management Council uh, shall report to the Assistant President on the status of the actions described in the subset. And there's a bunch of terminology there. But And there's a long list of those. There's a whole bunch of timelines and deadlines for agencies to undertake the actions that are described here. And to me, that says this is real stuff that we're going to watch and track and gauge, not these are good ideas that we hope you get to eventually. I think the success of this policy rests on that and two other things. One, that they have a vision of what good customer experience looks like. And we talked about that. Two is that it creates routines to report on, are we performing against the standards we set up for ourselves? And it gives hopefully mechanisms to hold people accountable. The third piece that remains to be seen is, are we going to have the resources to actually support this? Because it is a lot of behavioral change, but it's also, it's going to require investment in people and technology and other things. If OMB can get the policy side, the regulatory side, and the budget side of its house to work together, I think we can see a lot of success. And you're exactly right that that accountability piece, that measurement piece is going to be a critical linchpin of all of this because we don't we're not going to know is this working unless they have that tracking mechanism. I want to go to the fact sheet that you mentioned uh, at yep. the beginning of our conversation, because 
the this this is one of the times where I think the fact sheet is as important as the actual language of the EO, Lauren. Uh, mm-hmm. It categorizes uh, the what it calls high-quality interactions that the American people should expect to have with their government. Retiring, filing and managing your taxes, surviving a disaster. You talked about that a moment ago. Traveling, and so on and so forth. There's a bunch of them. Um, but it gets at one of the key private sector customer experience concepts, which is this uh, journey, the word journey I hear all the time that yeah. people talk about. That's that's important here because that's, I think, where the government has gotten off the rails over time. You're going from one thing to another thing to another thing, and none of them seem to the end user like they're connected at all. Absolutely right. I, I've seen a lot of good policy and um language from the government in terms of them them recognizing that this journey is something that that their customers are going through but they are not helping them along the way like they're not giving them a map and they're not even necessarily sure in government sometimes of the, their own map this policy seems to lay out that we want to shift that all together without as you say changing the boxes of government but recognizing that for example retirement is not just like one piece of signed paperwork it's a long-term plan that you may have that requires you to work with the social security agency if you're a federal employee the agency where you worked before if you receive federal benefits it may change how you report the income on those the irs and others and tries to connect them in a way that makes sense for the user rather than it makes sense for government. So much of the way that government works makes sense for government. Well, maybe. I'm not even sure it makes sense for government. <laughs> but it certainly doesn't make sense for us, the customer. This policy uh, takes key life events in the lives of the public from birth until retirement and even until passing and tries to put them from the perspective of those who are going through them rather than the people who are shuffling the paperwork. And I think if we can get to people having a vision of government that looks that way, people's views on government will change. So much of the impetus behind this is the absence of trust in government. And people have good reasons not to trust it because this government is not user-friendly. If we shift that view, that locus point so that the burden of action is on government rather than the customer, I think we'll have an opportunity to change those attitudes. All right. You mentioned the fact that resources need to come along with this in order for success. What are the other accountability pieces or partners or tools that have to be in place in order for this to work? Because it's not just dependent on the money and then the agencies going and doing it, right? Yeah. So one of the first policies the Biden administration did was their executive order on racial equity. And this is a big part of this. They need to make sure that they are talking to not just their existing customers, but their potential and eligible customers, people who may not know how to come to government and say, I need help, or they may be fearful or distrustful of doing so. If they are using their feedback and their experience and their views of government as a measurement for the success of this policy, that will change a lot about how government works. So that's one major way to insert metrics into this. Another way is to, um, instead of just saying like, you know, hey, Lauren, you're going to do customer experience as a secondary duty as assigned or a tertiary duty as assigned, bring in experts. Understand that this requires expertise from uh, in user design and human-centered design and technology and so many other things, and create a workforce that is oriented around the customer experience principles. I think both of those will add to the success of this. And if we recognize that those metrics um, uh, that will, we recognize that metrics of bringing people on board and also listening to all possible customers have to be a piece of this, I think we'll find some success. Lauren DeYoung-Schulman, thanks very much for joining me today. I appreciate it. 
Thanks so much, Francis. You can find a link to the EO on customer experience and that fact sheet Lauren referred to in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. It's not too early to plan for IT Mod Week. It's coming February 28th to March 4th. More than 100 events will happen around D.C. Lots of government and industry speakers. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The latest continuing resolution funds the federal government at 2021 levels through February 18th. The fiscal year beginning October 1st every year might be part of the problem. Bob Hale is senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's former Undersecretary of Defense Comptroller and Chief Financial Officer of the Defense Department. And Bob, you're citing beginning the fiscal year October 1st as a bad idea in the Center for Strategic and International Studies uh, look at bad ideas in the national security community this year. And you write, even short continuing resolutions cause problems for DOD. What are some of the problems that I imagine your successor, Mike McCord, is dealing with now as the USD comptroller because of the CR that we're in now? Welcome, Bob. Well, there's. Oh, I'm glad to be here, uh, Francis. Thank you. There are several uh, problems. For one thing, it interferes with the contracting process. Contracting officers have less time uh, to do their job, which you know inevitably I think leads to less well-crafted contracts. Program managers have a problem. Uh, the uncertainties may mean they can't go forward. Uh, with their programs. If it's a new start, a new program, they're at dead halt because the CR prohibits uh, new starts. And the uh, CR, as you said, essentially says, you know, keep doing what you did last year uh, in terms of money. Well, that may mean the money's in the wrong pots. If there's an increase in uh, procurement, for example, you may not be able to see it this year in fiscal 22. It looks like DOD will end up getting somewhere around $740 billion. But they're operating at $705 billion under this CR. So they're well below the level they'll be at. <clears throat> and finally, you can't reprogram. Uh, reprogramming, move, move money around from lower to higher priorities. Congress generally does not permit it under CR because there's no detailed budget basis. So it's just a bad way to run the Department of Defense uh, and all uh, and any federal agency. Congress is talking about maybe a full year continuing resolution and just dispensing with the whole appropriations process. You write in this piece, lengthy CRs pose significantly greater problems. Exceptionally long CRs that leave money in the wrong appropriations can cause serious execution problems. What does that look like if that extends out to the worst possible scenario, an exceptionally long CR that's the entire year, Bob? Terrible. That would be a real problem. Now uh, you're, you know, you're executing at 705 billion for the whole year, uh, regardless of what they would have gotten. Otherwise, you can't reprogram at all unless Congress does something, and they might if they go uh, to that extreme of a full year CR. But it's, it's just uh, that would be. I, I, I really don't think it will happen because Congress wants to have a say. Uh, and how the department and others spend money. So I think they'll find a way to get an appropriation bill. But to not do so uh, uh, would be really a problem. All right. The premise of your work is that beginning the fiscal year on October 1st is a bad idea. If October 1st is a bad idea, what's a good idea in your view, Bob? What's the solution? Well, I think a better idea, Francis, first off, DOD has been complaining, cajoling, pleading uh, to uh, to not have these late budgets for years and just to have no effect. In fact, it's getting worse. 
Last 10 years, we've only had one budget enacted on time, and they've averaged 120 days late per year. Um, I would uh, put out there for debate uh, December 15th as the end of the fiscal year. And I choose that date because uh, DOD and other agencies could do this closeout process, which is very labor intensive before the Christmas and winter holidays. Then importantly, I would extend the uh, time when the budget uh, is submitted, new budget submitted till April. Um, that would uh, still give Congress the same amount of time to debate the budget, but it would give them a couple of months if they blow through December 15th, as they have this year, uh, to uh, try to get the budget enacted. And again, short continuing resolutions, I like to say DOD can hold its fiscal breath uh, for a few months. Uh, it knows how to do that. It's when they go three, four, five months, which are becoming common, that they're a real problem. So I think the extending the or beginning the year uh, later, fiscal year or later, uh, would probably at least reduce the time when you're on continuing resolutions. Do you worry that the problem in Congress is such that if we just move the fiscal year begin or end to December 15th, December 16th is day one of the new fiscal year, that that would just extend the CR window that we've seen into April, May, June, that the length of time that it would take Congress to get its act together would stay the same and just be a different time of the year. Well, Francis, I can't rule that out. I mean, you can't force Congress to act. Uh, that old statement about you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Right. Um, but you would leave Congress, and under the scheme I've proposed, a couple of months when they didn't have another budget to deal with in January, February, March. They'd be in session, uh, presumably, and they wouldn't have another budget to deal with. So uh, I think you would at least increase the chances of, uh, if not on-time budgets, at least ones that are less late. Uh, is it a panacea? No. Is it a guarantee? No. But nothing else is working. Uh, and I don't see the downsides. Uh, so uh, I think it's worth a try or worth a debate. Over the years that you and I have been having these conversations, Bob, I'm always struck by your optimism. The cynic in me <laughs> reads the second line in your piece in the mid-70s, Congress enacted changes in its budget procedure and delayed the beginning of the fiscal year in part to reduce the number of late budgets. Delaying it then doesn't seem to have worked. The cynic in me says, would delaying it again work or would we get more of the same thing? Again, no guarantee, Francis, but uh, clearly what we're doing isn't working. Um, so uh, as I said before, I think it's worth a try or at least a debate. I haven't heard a lot of discussion of this, and I think that you'll get a cringe from the Congress first when they think about it, if they ever think about it. Uh, but again, I don't see anything else helping. This is a bad idea that is a bad idea having late budgets. So I think it's worth a try. Bob, would changing the beginning of the fiscal year affect any of the mechanics or the logistics inside the department about the audit or are those two separate and distinct issues? No, it, well, it would change the dates because now the, uh, uh, you know, they'd be auditing a fiscal year. So, yes, I, I don't know about the mechanics in terms. You still have to do the same things. You would have to do them on a different uh, time frame. And I, I haven't thought much about that, honestly, but I don't think there's a problem. But that's a good reason why this needs to be discussed and debated uh, by people other than me. 
uh, or to include me, um, uh, be, because there, there could be some unanticipated consequences that I haven't foreseen. Bob, you are right about the fact that if we keep doing what we're doing, we'll keep getting what we're getting. It's great to talk to you again, my friend. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate being here. Thank you. You can find a link to Bob's piece about the defense budget in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. I mentioned earlier, coming Monday, the new administrator of the U.S. Digital Service, Mina Shung, and the chief information officer of the United States, Claire Martirana, are here. They'll tell you how they'll help agencies execute President Biden's executive order on customer experience in government. That Daily Scoop podcast debuts Monday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The Army will update its data plan and its cloud plan to sync with its new digital transformation strategy. The Army's chief information officer says those updates will be ready this fiscal year. Raj Iyer is the Army's CIO. Raj, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program today. What is the overall goal of your digital transformation strategy? Thanks for coming on today. Oh, thank you, Francis. And uh, thank you for the opportunity to speak to your listeners today. The Army Digital Transformation Strategy was established uh, to develop unity of vision as well as unity of effort across the Army to support the Army's modernization strategy that was established three years ago. And that strategy explicitly called out digital transformation as a means for the Army to accomplish its modernization goals through Waypoint 2028 and Aimpoint 2035 for the the Army to establish a digitally enabled multi-domain force to deter near-peer adversaries. It was clear that our adversaries were rapidly adopting digital technologies, and to me, that's data, cloud, cyber, AI, and uh, and they were using these technologies to build their modern weapon systems. And it was also clear the US did nothing, we would run the risk of losing our overmatch capability. But while these technologies are commercial in nature, exploiting them for military applications requires both an acceptance that our future fight is probably gonna be the most technologically enabled ever, uh, and also an acceptance and acknowledgement that the Army can't, you know, can win, quite frankly, new ways to give us asymmetric advantages through these digital technologies that we've not had in the past. And, and so we see digital transformation as fundamentally changing how we fight and win in future. And, uh, and that is exactly how the rest of the private sector looks at digital transformation too. It's about, you know, how you change and, you know, operate differently to offer different services to your users through, digi- through, through digital. And uh, we're putting that same concept um, in play for the Army. So our goal for the digital transformation strategy is to enable what we're calling the digital army of 2028. Uh, that, it, that delivers overmatch through multi-domain operations or MDO. Uh, using these innovative and transformative technologies. And uh, when we say overmatch in multi-domain operations, that's our ability to fight and win in land, air, sea, space, and cyberspace. And and so we believe that the Army Digital Transformation Strategy is our approach um, to get to that uh, in-state objective. We have a link to the Army uh, Digital Transformation Strategy in the show notes at uh, The Daily Scoop podcast, uh, Raj. And I wonder... With a seven-year vision, Digital Army of 2028 is seven years out. Given what has happened transformationally in those five areas that you mentioned, especially in cyber and artificial intelligence over the past seven years, how did you write this strategy to not be so prescriptive that you had flexibility to reach that idea of the Digital Army in 2028 without kind of 
forcing the roadmap between now and then? Yeah, great question. And one of the things that we acknowledged very early on is that, you know, we need to keep up with the changing pace and, you know, of technology. And we certainly believe that even between now and 2028, the things that we are embarking on now will need to continuously be modernized for the future. So the Army Digital Transformation Strategy is not prescriptive in terms of specific technologies per se. But, you know, within the realm of the digital ecosystem that we just talked about, our ability to rapidly adopt uh, innovation coming from, you know, the commercial software vendors and industry is absolutely critical to maintaining that digital overmatch. And, and so uh, even though the strategy is established as a vision to get us to 2028, I fully expect that, you know, we will continue to tweak the strategy on an annual basis depending upon, you know, where, you know, the, not only the changing pace of technology, but also the dynamic threat environment we're in. And, and we need to factor that in and factor that in as well. Um, already this year, we can see that our geopolitical situation is very different from what it was last year. And so it's important for us to make sure that we are staying aligned with, you know, the national defense strategy. And when that comes out here in January, and then the priorities for the administration in terms of the theater that they want to focus on. And then what are those technologies that we need to have in place to be able to fight and win in those new theaters? You used a term a moment ago that I think is really interesting, digital overmatch. And I wonder what your responsibility is as the Army's chief technologist and an accomplished technologist at that in uh, manifesting digital overmatch with kinetic overmatch. What's the overlap or the intersection or whatever, whatever the right term is for how uh, digital overmatch and kinetic overmatch connect, Raj? Yeah, so for the Army, this is all about optionality. And it is very important that, you know, as I said earlier, um, it is, you know, we know that the future fight is not going to be one, you know, where we're trying to go kinetic to kinetic. Um, and when we say fight in multi-domain operations, it's our ability to bring in optionality through both kinetic and non-kinetic non -kinetic approaches. Um, the cyber world, um, electromagnetic warfare, uh, information warfare, these are all the avenues and the methods that we're looking at uh, to be able to achieve uh, non-kinetic effects and, and also the ability to combine these in some really creative ways that we have not traditionally done so in the past. And, and so what's exciting is just this year, we just concluded Project Convergence 21, our annual premier you know, experimentation and exercise, live fire exercise in Yuma, Arizona, where for the first time we actually, in, you know, we did seven live fire exercises um, experimenting with these exact same technologies and how, you know, we would potentially fight in future. It was a humongous success. And, uh, and it, is, it is clear to us that we as an army can indeed come together as large as we are, as complex as we are, when we all work together and we put our interests first, you know, you know in terms of that national security interest, we can actually uh, bring together industry, and our very best within the Army to quickly integrate and rapidly integrate these new technologies, experiment, prototype, and then actually uh, put them in production if needed. So, so the, the capability the, these technologies exist today, and it's how fast we can move in terms of integrating and incorporating them into our force uh, is going to be critical. The other aspect of digital transformation for us is that, you know, when you talk about, you know, using kinetic and non-kinetic means, it's, you know, we're also looking at this in terms of what changes we need to make to doctrine. How will we fight? You know, the joint warfighting concept that was established by the joint staff very clearly, you know, gets at, you know, these concepts of how we will fight in future. 
but operationalizing them, you know, making sure that our units and our forces are able to take advantage of these technologies as part of, you know, their options available is going to be critical. And, and so this, again, is all about digital transformation because it's that holistic approach to integrating these new technologies with changes in process and policies and, 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 uh, and the doctrine that goes with it. And so my job in the CIO is to be the easy button for the rest of the Army to actually innovate at scale. Uh, technology has always been hard for the Army to implement because of the high you know, barriers to entry. Um, and as we started getting started moving into cloud and some of these advanced technologies, you know, it just got harder and harder for the Army to, to adopt them. And so my job in the CIO is to be there um, as, the, uh, as that organization that um, uh, can help get them, um, you know, uh, quickly, rapidly uh, adopt and implement these digital technologies. The exercise that you mentioned a moment ago and categorized as a success, not every exercise always goes perfectly. What did you learn from that exercise that you can take forward in any of these areas, data, cloud, AI, cyber, any of the other technology areas uh, that you're moving on? Yeah, there were some tremendous lessons learned uh, from Project Convergence, but just the two that I will hit upon just at a very high level is that we've now come to recognize that the network is the backbone for how we're going to fight, you know, combine, join all domain command and control. Um, and so when you look at the vast volumes of data being collected, generated by our sensors and that have to go back uh, to command and control nodes for decision making, it is very clear that, you know, our traditional approach to, you know, relying on, you know, military SATCOM or other, you know, uh, uh, communication transport mechanisms um, are just not going to, you know, be very feasible anymore because of the large volumes of data. And so establishing the, the modernized network for the future with the right resiliency and uh, being able to move these large volumes of data from the tactical edge to the enterprise um, is going to be absolutely critical. And so um, that was not new news to us. Uh, and that is why, you know, when we established the Army Digital Transformation Strategy, it was explicitly called out as a separate line of effort to help us, you know, modernize our unified network by integrating our tactical network and our enterprise network. And uh, so that we're able to fight at the division and the core level, which, by the way, is different from what we've done in the past. In the past, you know, with, in both Afghanistan and, and in the Middle East, it's been a brigade combat team level fight where we had all the resources and the technology we needed within a brigade combat team. And now we expect that the future fight, you know, the unit of action will be the division of the core. And that really now means that we need the network capability to extend from the tactical edge back to the enterprise. The second lessons learned was, you know, it all comes down to data interoperability across our weapon system platforms. And, um, you know, if, if the network is a highway, I mean, the, uh, the data is the gasoline that fuels all the cars on the highway. And, and so it's really important for us to make sure that uh, our systems can talk to each other. And by the way, that's not just systems inside the Army, but it's, you know, between the Army and our joint services, but also our allied and coalition partners. And so um, as we start to um, experiment in, in Project Convergence 22, for the first time, we're going to be bringing on our allied and coalition you know, nation partners um, to work with us in those experimentation efforts so we can see how well we're actually able to interoperate, um, exchange data back and forth across our systems. And, um, and again, this is a new way for us to fight because in the past, we've looked at each of these 
weapon system platforms from a very platform centric approach where we were looking at um, you know, a specific, you know, material capability to deploy to the field. And now for the first time, we're taking a data centric approach. And that, again, is part of that change, you know, in, in culture and attitude uh, with digital transformation. And that data centric approach means now we're going to have to treat the data that flows in and out of these systems just as important as the kinetic effect. Uh, that the systems might be delivering in the field. And you mentioned this convergence being the Army's part of uh, uh, JADC2. That means interoperability and interaction with Project Overmatch at the Navy and ABMS at the Air Force is also important. I imagine your relationships with Aaron Weiss, CIO at the Navy, and Lauren Nelsenberger, CIO at the Air Force, is becoming tighter and tighter all the time, isn't it, Raj? Oh, absolutely. And uh, and even though each of us have our own experimentation in place, um, we, we have been participating in their experiments and they've been participating in ours. So, you know, even outside of the project convergence exercises, we also held uh, Defender Pacific, um, you know, that I actually physically attended in, in Guam earlier this year. And I got to see firsthand how well we were actually working with the Navy and the Air Force in Guam when we held Defender Pacific. Um, the same thing in Europe uh, this year uh, in, in 22, when we hold Defender Europe, uh, we'll be working very closely with the Air Force there. So in every one of these experiments, we're, you know, we're in, including and integrating the equities from the other sister services, um, but also working very closely with the combatant commands, right? So whether it's Indo-PACOM or UCOM or AFRICOM or CENTCOM, it's very important to make sure that, you know, at the end of the day, you know, it's the JTF. Uh, that pulls together these resources across all of our all of our services in support of the of that joint commander. And so it's important again from a command and control perspective that you know we have the right processes and doctrine in place um, for us to bring data uh, to that combatant commander from all of these systems and um, and data sources. As we talk, Raj, the list of questions that I have for you gets longer and not shorter. So I'd love to have you come back in the new year and continue the conversation. Thanks very much for joining me today. Oh, would love the opportunity. And thank you so much for getting the word out. It's a real honor to be on your show. Thank you. You can find a link to the Army's digital transformation strategy in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. Federal agencies have less than a week to examine their networks for the Log4j vulnerability, according to a new directive from the Department of Homeland Security. It's the latest security emergency directive for agencies to manage. Sam Curry's chief security officer for Cyber Reason and president of Cyber Reason Government, Inc., and Cyber Reason sponsoring today's Daily Scoop podcast. Sam, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You wrote recently that the idea of security to a lot of people is like peanut butter. What's the analogy there? <laughs> Sam, welcome. My, my, my pleasure. And thanks for having me on. Um, I think I meant one of two things when I said it. The first is that, that uh, we tend to think of security as just one big amorphous blob. Um, the other one is we, we typically in defense have to peanut butter our, our resources across a huge domain. And the bad guys don't have to you know, do the same. They can bring all their force to bear at one point. So if you're spreading out your defenses and you don't know the time and place of the attack, that immediately puts you on a defensive footing. And, and I'm sure it was one of those two. The other one is that, that we tend to look at the patchwork quilt of things to do in defense uh, as uh, all being equal. And, and frankly, they're not. 
You also wrote uh, about the first order risks versus mm. second order chaos. What's the difference between those both in the order and the, the risks versus chaos connection? Oh, I, 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 lo- I love this idea. And credit to where it's due, by the way, I didn't come up with this. Um, it was from um, uh, Noah Harari, uh, who wrote Sapiens, which is a, a wonderful book. Uh, in it, he talked about um, two kinds of chaotic system. They're, all, they're both complex. They're both adaptive. First order chaos is, uh, is like nat- nature. It's a natural system. So an example would be a hurricane in the meteorological system. That's a threat. Another one would be perhaps COVID-19 in the biology system. That's a threat. But they're not intelligently adaptive. Um, so second order chaos is intelligent adaptation. And, and, and there is a continuum of that. It might mean perhaps machine assisted, but usually it means, at least for now, that there's a human being in the loop. Uh, humans, uh, what was that old saying? All monsters are human. Uh, the ones we truly are scared of are the human beings because they're adaptive and they're thoughtful in their adaptation. If, if COVID-19 was a second order risk, it would say to itself something like, you know, I'm going through an airport, lower my host's body temperature. And it doesn't, it doesn't do that, at least not to the best of my knowledge. The uh, the possibility there has what implications for cybersecurity, though? What does that mean that a human should mm. think about as one is thinking about defending a network, for example? Because you've got both of those challenges, potentially, that you're up against. Yeah. So, I mean, let's, back to the peanut butter, mm-hmm. right? So, not everything in cyber is focused on the enemy. Uh, a lot of what we do is things like patching. Very important to reduce the giant kick me sign. It's it's things like, um, uh, you know, strong authentication, very important, right? It, it's, it's following processes, but there's also things like compliance and reporting and, and, and doing risk assessments and the like, all of which is important. But for the most part, it kind of deals with security as a theoretical, how big is my risk? How big is my vulnerability? How do I manage them? As if I was a CIO, by analogy, by, by comparison, a CIO, most of the nature that, that he or she faces is nature. It's failed parts. It's, it's, it doesn't connect. It's human error as opposed to human malice. And in that world, you know, it, what you do in that world kind of makes sense to deal with this IT security hygiene stuff. It's very important, but there's another category of active opponent. And that's where I prefer actually the label cyber, but but you know, I, I think cybersecurity now refers to everything pretty much. But let's think of let's narrow in and say if, if there's a human being in offense adapting to me, it behooves us in defense to do the exact same thing and apply human beings as effectively and efficiently as possible in this other. So you can manage a lot of the very important functions that are really automatable and process driven and don't necessarily focus on the opponent. You can do that, but don't. But your primary mission is to free up resources and capabilities to get super efficient at finding and shutting down bad guys. And so that's why I make a distinction in that way. You, uh, First told, order me, or second order. you told me a little bit before we went on the air about um, a item that you read recently about mm-hmm. ransomware. And it speaks, I think, directly to that idea of human error versus human malice. And you said that this this piece that you read said that ransomware incidents increase over holidays and weekends. That's an oh, example, yeah. isn't it, about the good guys having to not just think about the way the bad guys think, but have to think about way the way that they're good people that make mistakes think, right? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, well, if you think about it, um, they know that you're under pressure at holiday times. You've got uh, husbands and wives saying, why aren't you with the family? Um, You might, in fact, in that survey that we did, we found, uh, you know, we surveyed over 1,200 people who had dealt with ransomware, specifically 90% of them uh, had dealt with ransomware on a holiday or weekend. Uh, And so it was like, you know, the, the threats on Memorial Day, threats on 4th of July, there were threats on Labor Day weekend. And of those, by the way, 70% were at least partially or totally intoxicated. I won't say totally, but they had at least had a drink or two. Uh, and so you've got a skeleton crew who's watching the monitors. They're not necessarily what you would be at, say, you know, 10 a.m. on a Monday. And um, at the same time, when they call for help, those people have had a beer or two, or they've had some champagne, or they've had a large meal and have been up all night. Uh, in the case of New Year's Eve. So that's the boom time. The bad guys are going to go, I understand your rhythms. You may not understand mine. You may not even understand your own. You think, okay, things are quiet. I'm going to go home. But this is the time when companies are also, and, and government organizations are most likely to pay, mm-hmm. right? It, it's it's the Thanksgiving crush, especially in the private sector side. Uh, retail organizations, it's called Black Friday because that's when they go profitable. They go from the red to the black. Mm-hmm. The pressure to make sure that IT is available then and for Cyber Monday is massive. What is the biggest challenge that a governmental organization has to thinking differently? Is it that idea of we do things the way we always do them? Or is there some other issue? Because this, what you're talking about, you haven't said anything to me yet, at least, that sounds like it's a technology problem. The, this organization doesn't have this thing or that service or whatever. It sounds like this is a way of thinking, a worldview that organizations are lacking in. Yeah, I actually, um, you know, I, yeah, my company sells technology and I believe technology is really important, but I think the biggest problem in cybersecurity is a people problem. It's people on offense on the other side coming after us and it's people on defense. If I had to characterize on defense, you know, the single biggest thing that would help most security departments, it is better alignment with the mission, right? If you, if you think about it, if you, if you go back 20 years, um, uh, the New York Times had, a, had, a, had a, a piece on, is the CIO really a C-level person? And, um, and I think back, it's, it's quite telling that in those days, people thought, well, you know, our, our, our organizations or our companies or whatever, what we do isn't that thing, the IT thing. They're not truly one of us in the business or in the mission. And that's gone away. I think most people would say that CIOs are integral to government services, to to interacting with other organizations. Um, However, that is now the CISO's burden, the chief information security officer. They are seen 20 years later like hobbyists. These are the people that, that they get in the way, they're the office of no, uh, they report lower in the organization. And, and, and the painful truth is, even though most, most security departments came out of IT, we aren't primarily an IT function. We're a risk function. And I don't think most organizations, when you're doing the, what's our financial risk and what's the budget look like, or you're saying, well, you know, what is the physical risk to an organization or to logistics? They're not saying, hey, bring the CISO in here and let's have a conversation. And the single biggest thing that would help that is to bridge that gap. And I usually advise CISOs on how to do that. I think it would also be great if people on the other side of the divide reached back. Because cyber literacy, it's not as painful or scary as it may seem to some. 
And I think once we've got our org structures, we think, well, it's not really at the top table in this organization. And I think it's time to, to, to bridge that gap. What do you think would drive that? What do you think would encourage that kind of behavior in an organization like a government agency, Sam? Yeah, well, um, I think it's happening. I mean, we saw the FBI went from a top 10 list way back um, that had cyber at the bottom. Now cyber's at the top, uh, you know, in terms of what, what the threats that they deal with are. Uh, we've seen DHS and CISA grow enormously. We've seen a mandate from the White House with the executive order back in May saying, you know what, you got to take patching seriously and you've got to do things like SBOM, secure bill of materials. You've also got to do things, or software bill of materials. You've also got to do things like EDR, you know, and point detection response, because this is the stuff that you've got to elevate. And I think that pressure is going to continue. But uh, nobody wants to be scared into doing something. Nobody wants to be mandated into doing something. But I'm going to say this, that it will get scary with things like software supply chain attacks and ransomware until you do elevate it and start to empower that group. Because th they need the ability to, to invest in technologies that can stop that stuff. And that's a human logistical problem. Um, and, and frankly, the pressure will continue as long as it's not being addressed. We're going to see laws, regulations, more executive orders. We'll see directives. Uh, you know, I think we're entering an age where the number one concern for some agencies and departments is, can I continue to fulfill my mission if I get nailed with ransomware or if I'm, if I'm faced with a potential, you know, fatal, not fatal, but shall we say crisis level breach? Mm -hmm. this, is, this is materially impactful to being able to do the job. Sam, one of the challenges that the CIOs and CISOs and CTOs and so on that I talk to every day in government tell me they have is, they are focused on what they have in front of them now and what their, whatever their strategic plan term is, mm. that's where they are now. What should those folks be watching over the horizon that could be coming at them either for the good or the bad? Yeah, well, I think, I think actually this is a leadership thing. Uh, I, I, I don't expect even CTOs or CIOs to be cyber experts, even CISOs, believe it or not. The temptation, by the way, is a, as a chief information security officer, you come up through the ranks you're hyper competent at your discipline, but eh, I got news for you. The new job doesn't need you to do that first. You need lieutenants you can trust. A really good advisor to me when I first became a chief security officer said, and, and actually similar advice when I was a CTO, said, uh, you know, you can be the voice of security. You can be an agent for change. Um, you, you know, you can be operationally excellent at projects. Pick one, get lieutenants for the rest. And ideally get lieutenants for all of it because your job is now logistical, it's social, it's, it's making sure the right bets are placed in an organization. Um, and I think that's, that's the, the top order of the day, right? It's, it's, it's leadership, uh, set the strategy, set the tone, make sure people understand the commander's intent, make sure you give them a normative framework to make decisions, and then iterate. Now, the thing coming over the horizon to be scared of is the bad guys are getting better at a faster rate than most defensive organizations. They've got, they run like companies. They've got agile development. They've got VC behind them in a dark, twisted way. And that's not meant to scare. What it says is they're putting resources into figuring out how to get around you. You need to give air cover to the people, the men and women who are going to figure out how to stop it and get the next generation of technology rolling. That's the job. It's not to be the brightest security person in the room. It's the logistical function. So focus on that. And that could apply to anyone at the C level. Approach the CISO. 
don't get sucked into a conversation about you know nuts and bolts and viruses and, and, and virus counts. Instead, have a conversation about risk and ask how you can bring support to bear and how you're going to do, what are you going to decide to spend on and what are you not going to do as a CISO? It's that dialogue that's going to encourage them and give them the power to actually create organizations that, that win here. Sam Curry of Cyber Reason, great to have you on the program. Thanks for doing it. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Coming Monday, the new administrator of the U.S. Digital Service, Mina Shung, and the chief information officer of the United States, Claire Martirana. Until then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.